Welcome to the acclaimed podcast, Deep Dive with Andy and the White Whale. Welcome to the Deep Dive. Andy's, did you catch the news today? The Broncos, Ravens, Cardinals, and Seahawks have all reported to training camp. So it is officially football season, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, in celebration of this fact, we are going to do a deep dive today into the NFL analytics revolution. Uh, this is a space that is growing and learning at an astonishing rate, offering some very useful and valuable insight into the game. Uh, I think it's uh, important for anyone who's handicapping football to be aware of what's going on in this space. Uh, and uh, I've learned some lessons personally over the last year that uh, have completely changed my approach to handicapping football. So this is going to be one of the more, more interesting and, and um, important episodes we do all off season. Uh, we're excited yeah, you to might, welcome you. Might be you, listening to this. Uh, you might be listening to this on Thursday, which whatever, I'm, you know, we're going to release it here on Wednesday, but if you're still, and it should still be fresh in your mind, we could not have picked a perfect day, a more perfect day for this. <laughs> As we are finally learning from the the non-analytics community about the importance of the Corey Dillons and the Rex Burkheads of the world as it has come to the Patriots dynasty. It, it was hilarious, the serendipity of the arguments on Twitter today when we when we decided to go into this topic and bring on this guest. Oh yeah. I, and this you is couldn't, this, you can't write this stuff. You can't write this stuff on top of the fact that like I got a guess that one of the underlying themes of the entire NFL season this year is going to be kind of this back and forth between the people who have, you know, data and support for their claims and understanding about football and the people who have, you know, who have experience through playing the game and who do not. Uh, and yeah, it's started today, first day of the actual season, you know, or training camp. So um, with that, let's welcome our, uh, our guest, new voice on the podcast, a data scientist and researcher newly with Pro Football Focus, the former head of the data and analytics uh, for Roto Grinders. Welcome to the deep dive, Kevin Cole. Well, thank you. Thank you for bringing me on. And like you mentioned, this is an interesting time. We're having one of, I would assume, or at least a thousand different running back value discussions over Twitter right now. So uh, yeah, buckle in, buckle in. It's not going to be the last time we're talking about this stuff this year. Oh man, this uh, the tweet about uh, the Patriots winning Super Bowls because of their running backs was really what put me over the top uh, this morning. And uh, you know, you you got to wonder though, right? Like they didn't even really have great running backs, and yet they won all these Super Bowls. Can you imagine what if they had traded Tom Brady for like Ladainian Tomlinson after his 2001 Super Bowl? They what they would have won like 10 or 12, right? Easily, probably, probably more. Yeah, I think the problem with, um, I mean, I, I don't mind some of the, the the analysts. I mean, I even think even like Dan Orzlowski was on there. He was the one uh, tweeting a lot of this stuff. I mean, I think that they're trying to do a good job. The problem is they're, you know, maybe talking a little too much and not listening enough when it comes to some of these things. So the more you talk, then something like that's going to spew out. And it's pretty tough to walk back after you're, after you're praising the Patriots and their running backs. I mean, maybe if you want to point to just last year, you can try to do that, even though that's still kind of wrong when Tom Brady's picking up all the critical uh, first downs to beat the Chiefs and, and to win the game at the end of the Super Bowl. But still, um, just you got you to listen a little bit too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's got to be some, some kind of... That was rough today. And there's got to be some kind of 
like players trying to protect players and salaries and things going on here, livelihoods, friends. There's, that has to be some element of this because otherwise a lot of this just makes absolutely zero sense. But anyway, let's not uh, let's not get too snarky. Let's get into some of the, the hot topics that we really want to kind of dive into. Uh, and I'll ask the first question here. Um, would you, I mean, do you agree with my setup really at the top there? Um, is the NFL analytics space growing as fast as it appears from the outside and is it excited exciting to be part of this revolution i mean it's definitely exciting i think i mean i'm probably a good example of why it's grown as quickly as it has been. i'm not a trained computer scientist i mean in fact i'm not even a trained statistician or mathematician unlike some people that i'm working with currently um, at pff but because of the fact that there are so many tools out there and ways to learn and you can you can be self-taught on how to use different programming languages like R and Python like I am. I mean, we're seeing analysis. I mean, just today, uh, there's a writer at USA Today, a young guy, uh, Stephen Ruiz, who came out with an article about uh, Elliot and Ezekiel Elliott and his his worth. You know, he had a couple of little plots that he put together through using R and it's not like he's been a lifelong computer scientist or like a or statistician to do this sort of stuff. But the, the data is out there, uh, the tools are out there, and that really opens it up for people to start to explore. And when you have a free exchange of ideas, and then you combine that with the fact that I think we're seeing a tipping point in what the actual NFL is doing as far as uh, passing a lot more, going forward on fourth down, things like that are actually being implemented. And, you know, NFL teams are way behind other leagues as far as how many analytical people that they're employing. But still, now that a lot of teams are employing one, two, three, sometimes even four, that's still exponential growth compared to what we were seeing just a couple of years ago. Excellent. Yeah, it's, um, it's, wild, yeah. it's wild like the haves and the have-nots all of a sudden. It, it, I mean, it became quickly apparent. Like which teams are, are going to embrace it and which teams are going to kind of fall behind. And it, it brings me to the point of, you know, you, we started with the argument with the Orlovsky thing, the Ruiz article. You know, you can quickly tell who's on which side of the argument. And it, 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 it starts now and it gets worse when the season starts, especially when there's a crucial juncture in the game and the team does, which essentially the wrong thing. You know, not going for two down by the, you know, by 14 late, not not taking the fourth down call, kicking the field goal instead, and you, you do get that argument. And just you know, with your with your research, with your stats, with with the information we have, like it, it should be easy enough to debunk some of this stuff. But I mean, what would you what would you say to some of these people that just say that, you know, you can say you should go for two down by 14 here, but you only get to play this game once. You can't take that sample size and say if the game is played a thousand times, it's the right move. You know, what, what's the argument to that? Because that's, that's, that's always been the interesting thing to me. Yeah, I mean, the argument against a lot of these things normally points to, well, I understand, and I'll even acknowledge that in general terms, this may be correct, but in this particular circumstance, have you thought about this? Or have you thought about the fact that this is not a great offense? Or have you thought about the fact that this is going on? So all these different things are going are going into it. And I think you really need to just shift people's baseline perception for, 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 for how to think about things. And if you can do that, then hopefully people will will start to buy into it. I think it's just really getting people to acknowledge, you know, well, how do you come to your argument that you're at now so you still have assumptions built into that and it's not just 
a new way of thinking that has assumptions that need to be vetted, but you kind of have to vet the way people are currently thinking. And if you can, if you can put those two next to each other, you can pretty clearly see that one is based upon analysis and one is based upon, you know, intuition and what's already been done. And I'll take the first over the latter. Mm. So what are some of the sort of the basic truths that you would say have been clearly established in the data as far as plus EV play calling, as far as plus EV, uh, you know, roster construction? I mean, for play calling, we've seen it more and more. I mean, the passing on early downs, especially, uh, you know, second down and long situations like that, first and 10. I mean, first and 10 is still almost a 50-50 proposition at this point, which is kind of insane after everything's been put into it. But if you've seen over time, you know, passing has gone up steadily as we've gone on. And I think it's really analogous to three-pointers in the NBA and people just starting to learn that the math isn't as in your face as it is where you could see that a three-pointer is worth 50% more than a two-pointer. But when you start to look into, especially into these advanced metrics, I mean, more than, you can see already in yards per play, but if you look even more at expected points, things like that, you're just going to benefit more by throwing it earlier. So I think that is a pretty well-established truth and it's something that's becoming more and more accepted. So that would, that's always going to be number one for me, just because there's so many different opportunities where you could be tilting, you could be tilting it, you know, five, 10% towards in the direction of passing. And that would make a much bigger impact than it would for something like fourth down where fourth down, of course, you know, that that's, that's something that you want to be doing, but there aren't that many critical fourth down situations during the course of a game. And even then the, the differential there is is for win probability isn't so enormous that i can see why people would would pass on that sometimes but just doing something simple like hey let's throw the ball you know five times a game more on early downs than we would have normally just that over the course of the season could have a huge impact i like that a lot because you know back to my the first question i asked there as far as you know the sample size being so small on one particular play like a late situation in a game whereas you know you take it and express it like that when you're when you're doing something over the course of an entire season improving your i mean just improving your win probability in those games that's going to add up eventually and i really liked uh i really liked the example you went to with the nba three-pointer i think people i don't know why people were so much easier to grasp that like that one really seemed to sink in quicker for people than you know running running the ball on first down is a bad idea just i don't know if it's just the you know, it's it's the way things have always been done. I don't know if it's just football is more of an old school kind of game, but that that one is really really still struggling to sink in with people. And then, I guess the the next point is, you know, we are in a sense pretty much a handicapping podcast. We we talk a lot of sports betting, sports betting on football, and I think that you know, like your three pointer analogy, we really were able to to see that put to use quickly by people who handicap basketball and. You know, how, how can we pivot and take some of this into the predictive modeling? You know, already we see people just as they start to weight their models and power numbers, weighting defense less. I mean, is is that the, the only thing or is there, is there other ways to use that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that, that's a big takeaway. Well, one other thing I would just mention back with basketball versus football. See, with basketball, you know, the the volume of three-pointers that you're getting – I mean, they just play way too many games in the NBA, but one of the benefits of that is that when you have a plus EV strategy, it's more likely to pay off for for a particular team. So I think one of the problems with football and why strategies don't get implemented faster is that 
you still don't you still have small samples of that small sample with, size yeah team with a with a small ev you know with a negative ev strategy like the cowboys or like the seahawks can still do well it's still possible for them to do well whereas it wouldn't really be the case for 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 a basketball team now as far as um you know other different things you could look at i mean so, some of the things that, that have gone on this season you know play action passing is something where it's pretty simple if you're doing that more often so i think you want to track off and teams are doing that um roster construction i mean there are a bunch of different things that, that go into that but again that's something where it's not necessarily going to pay off quickly and it's much more variance in how a football player will perform versus trying to get a top pick in the nba and how someone like that will perform so i think in, in football generally things are just harder there's just going to be more variance you're going to have to deal with but at the same time there's going to be more of an advantage to having a plus ev strategy mm, okay so you brought up play action i wanted to ask a quick question about that this is somewhat of an opinion question i guess uh, do you think Kirk Cousins question? No. Well, I mean, Kirk Cousins is good at play action. Russell Wilson is good at play action. Other quarterbacks who are good at other parts of the game are not as good at play as, at play action. Like, is it a skill? And can you entirely dissect play action from the strength of the running game, from the strength of the running back, from the look that the defense expects down the situation and things like that? Like, like I almost want to put it in its entirely own category as like a quarterback skill of selling it. And I almost want to put it in a quarterback skill of Russell Wilson being short. So they can't really see where his head is looking. Snap, you know, they, they can't see where that he's, he's snapped his head around and he's looking downfield to read the defense. Like, like I, but I, but I'm searching here for basically, you know, how to evaluate who is good at play action and, and how to incorporate that in some way in terms of quarterback ranking. Yeah, I mean, I think that the general rule that you should expect everyone to be better with play action, it may not always be the case, like we talked about just from the variance of everyone's playing, but you should really expect everyone to be better. And there hasn't been a correlation established between how well a team runs the ball and how much improvement you get from play action passing. Now, that doesn't mean that the running game you know, it, it doesn't matter what, what you're doing in the running game, things like that. It's just it doesn't show up in, in, the, in the data. So that's all that we really know. And I think one issue with some of the data on play action is the classification of it. I mean, someone like the Rams and what they do, what Jared Goff does for play action or Russell Wilson does for play action, which is largely out of behind center. I mean, Wilson does a little bit of both, but definitely the Rams are almost all behind center. I mean, that sort of play action pass is much different than what the Eagles or the chiefs are doing in play action, but it's all classified the same. So I, I think that the, the first, the first one where you're doing it from under center, you probably get a little bit more of that real of that real boost. So I think it's part of it is that too. It's just differentiating between what is a real play action and what is just a cursory, you know, uh, uh, motioning the ball over towards the running back out of the shotgun, which is not really a play action pass. Oh, okay, interesting. Uh, um, so, but the, you, the Russell Wilson thing, I almost feel like can is like a null hypothesis in some sense, right? Like. Two years ago, behind the worst offensive line with literally no threat of a run, he was still absolutely incredible from play action, which is why I kind of feel like it has less to do with scheme, has less to do with kind of, you know, less to do with, um, you know, the defense expecting a run and more to do with they are trying to read and evaluate in the moment, is this a running play? And they can't tell because, you know, Wilson is good at disguising it and his, he's short enough that they can't see you know, him looking downfield where a guy like Rogers maybe doesn't feel like pass 
you know, pass. Uh, he doesn't feel like play action is as effective potentially because he's taller, because he snaps his head around real quickly. And, you know, he's giving away a little bit of, you know, he has cues that they can pick up. Oh, this is a passing play. Like, you know, I, I guess maybe all of this is impossible to really glean from the data we have. Um, but it's something that I kind of, you know, hold up Russell Wilson as kind of a more, you know, he has, he has a better threat at quarterback just because I feel like it is a skill that comes along with his skill set otherwise. But um, no, no, you know, we I talked about this one time as far as, you know, when, when we finally saw the data, because there's just straight up data that says it doesn't matter how good the running back is play action is still effective. Like you can, you could put a guy without a helmet, you know, on crutches back there and try to hand him the ball and they would still, they'd still bite because it's happening too fast. And I think we started a little bit of a hypothesis as far as like, why, why do some teams do it better then? And I, I, and I agree. I don't know if it is scheme all the time. I think sometimes it is just an experienced quarterback who does it well. I think it, it, the quarterback sells the run much more than the running back in, in a lot of cases, just, going back to Peyton Manning back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see the argument with Wilson being a shorter quarterback. I mean, the reasons that the reasons that it works generally is it slows the pass rush, which is important because everyone on the defensive line and even linebackers, if they're blitzing, they have to they have to fill their gap. They have to stay they have to they have to stay in their gap for the potential run. So that's that's first of all. So the longer it takes, the receivers can get further downfield, which is important. Now for someone like Russell Wilson, one of the things people complain about him with the shorter quarterback is the fact that he likes to take such deep drops. Um, so but you can take a deeper drop, obviously, out of play action. And <laughs> yeah. and and if you're you're normally moving to one side or another on some of these runs, I mean in particular when you're talking about the Rams when they're when they're running some of their outside zone. So then you have a very, very wide pocket, and the the wider the pocket is, the more lanes you have to throw in. So I could see something like that all being good for Russell Wilson, who's very who's excellent, of course, at throwing the ball downfield. I mean it's gonna depend on the quarterback somewhat, but I think there are just general things about play action that make it a lot easier and especially easier to connect on longer throws, and that's really where you're going to boost all of the different uh, pitching. Oh, yes. Very, very good point. Very good point. How about on the defensive side of things? Uh, do you have an opinion? Can you weigh in on uh, pass rush versus pass coverage? Uh, and can you explain a little bit why that's a debate going on right now? Yeah, I think it's a debate just because the established theory, and it aligns with – the highest paid players on the defense are normally your, your edge rush players. And I don't think you can say, we can say for certain right now that pass coverage is more important than pass rush. I mean, and then a lot of people are trying to say that, that PFF and others are saying that, you know, you know pass rush doesn't, <laughs> doesn't matter. Pass rush doesn't matter and things like that, which is, which is not, not happening. Like, no, why don't you no want Jadavia and Clowney to get paid, Kevin? Come on. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so none of that is happening, but I, I do think it's something to look at where we're just biased towards what we can see, right? You can see someone bring pressure, uh, especially in the TV angle. You can see someone bring, bring pressure. Do you know what, uh, a free safety is doing when they're not even involved in a play, right? It, it sure, just doesn't come sure. into play. And I think there's also, you also got to think about it. I like to think about somewhat from a theoretical standpoint that even if you had, let's say a perfect pass rush. So even if you had a pass rush where you could beat the, let's say the tackle off of the edge as quickly as you possibly could, you're still not going to get a sack every single play, right? Sure. You, the, the quarterback is still going to be able to get the ball off. Whereas theoretically, if you had perfect pass defense, 
there would not be a single completion in the in the entire in the entire game. So I think that when it comes down to it, if you can get everything going right from a pass coverage standpoint, it would have more value in that circumstance. Now the question is, how do you build towards that? And I think that's where it comes to a lot of interesting discussions. Uh, a primary one being whether or not you should be paying these stud edge rushers as much as you are because they're commanding so much money now in the defensive line that it really saps your ability to, to build out elsewhere. So I think, you know, Belichick's, of course, is a great example of someone who let, you know, lets Chandler, Chandler Jones go, lets other people go, spent paid a lot of money to, to Gilmore recently. So has gone the other way, paid a lot of money to Revis before. So has, has gone the other way with, with how he's building a defense. Gilmore so freaking impactful in last year's Super Bowl. People still are behind on that for some reason. I really can't. I I, I can't. I'll, I guess I'll just I'll just keep that to myself. Oh, but uh, but Homer. Quick, real quick. Uh, well, and, so, and so real, you, real you quick. bring up the Patriots though. The 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 one thing about you know pass rush not mattering. Pass rush matters, but you can scheme it completely out apparently. And this yeah, is one right, where I don't understand right. how people don't get it more. It wasn't even. One of those things that's like, you know, if people, some people feel like some of this is fringe, whether it's, you know, football outsiders or PFF or just the analytics community in general. This one was clearly pasted into their faces by mass media right there on the screen. I mean, Fox was talking about it. Everybody who was covering the NFL games who were following the Patriots talked about it just ad nauseum as far as how fast Brady was getting the ball out. And that was yeah. That was like the biggest, one of the biggest headlines of the, the playoff run. And I mean, we, we quickly realized like, shit, they, they, they're just completely taking the pass rush out of the equation by doing this almost, almost completely. And I mean, not everybody does it. And that's why pass rush still matters. But yeah. we, we saw it completely not matter for a couple of games. You had a quarterback with a quick release, combine that with a good offensive line coach, and you took out the best defensive player in the game in the most important game of the season. Like that, it was it was a, almost a perfect test case for you know this exact argument that was going on. But but real quick for you, Kevin. Uh, so if you're the Chargers GM, Sophie's choice between Joey Bosa and Derwin James. Well, I mean, you could get James at such a, a lower price that I think that would probably be the way to go. Especially especially if you can trade Bosa for for something significant. Um, I think that would that would be the way to go. Ooh, that was like a professional segue. So if you across the league right now, I did I did like a quick impromptu ranking in my head of like who's a good who's a great who's a good GM, you know, and who's kind of mediocre and who's bad. And like it's lopsided to the bad across the league currently. Like if you know what what if you're a GM in this league, like how do you go about constructing your roster in a way that it's balanced and it's kind of plus EV for today's NFL? Yeah, I think balance is the most important point. I mean, I, I, you, I hate to just hit on the Patriots over and over again because it becomes one of these things where you don't want it to be like a tautology where everything the Patriots does is right because they're right sort of thing. But what they've been able to do, and this is beyond the well-publicized fact that Tom Brady takes less money because his wife is a is a billionaire and all that stuff. But um, that we know that we know. That we know, and the T, you know, TB twelve, all T, all that stuff. I don't want to get into to that. But even beyond that, if you look at how they construct their roster, uh, it's very flat comparison to most teams. Like I said, this goes beyond uh, Tom Brady. This is something where the the top ten players, the top fifteen players on the roster, they're paying a, a much smaller percentage than you are elsewhere, and I think that's important for a couple of, of different reasons. I mean, one building depth is extremely important in the NFL where players get injured, things like that. Uh, number two is 
like people focus too much on high end talent and too little on weaknesses. So when it comes to an offensive line, let's say it's great to have Joe Thomas at left tackle, but if you have, you know, four bums lining up next to him, uh, you can scheme a pass rush that where it, it doesn't matter. Or if, you, if, even if you have one or two bums on the, on the pass uh, on the offensive line, it doesn't matter as much. So the Patriots have come more with the philosophy as we want every player to be, you know, at a level that can have an impact and they don't necessarily need the high end talent. And when you bring that all together, then you give the opponent uh, fewer places to attack. And I think that's where more teams could be going. So the, the way that you do that is, you know, you get a lot of draft picks, right? So you get a lot of talent that way. And you look for free agents and you spend your money or you, you extend players that fall into the middle class of the NFL because often the the highest paid players are overpaid, uh, especially free agents are are vastly overpaid. They rarely make up their, their contract. And then a lot of people talk about the NFL and they say, oh, the salary cap doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter because you can always find a way to get under it. But how teams end up getting under it is they massively overpay certain players and then they also overplay for for very lowly paid players because everyone needs those minimum players in order to fit in under the salary cap when they have all these massively paid players. So that leaves a, a vacuum for these middle mid-tier middle-class players. And that's where teams like the Patriots can really clean up. Interesting concepts. It, Thoughts, it makes you um, think about yeah. their draft strategy. Yeah, it's right. almost like the, the reverse. It's quantity over quality. Where, and it is, they're, they're just taking a lot of shots in the middle rounds, trying to build depth cheap, and, and they've been great at free agents and basically free agents and trading with the Raiders. Yeah, it, it, yeah. That's, that's the key to roster construction, apparently. Yeah. Another, uh, another common kind of uh, common, um, I guess, uh, design, roster design that we've seen pop up and we've seen be successful. You look at Russell Wilson winning a Super Bowl as a young quarterback with Seattle. You look at, you know, the, the Philadelphia Eagles doing it with Carson Wentz and then, uh, you know, Nick Foles inevitably. Uh, what, um, you know, what, what do you make of someone like a team like the Browns trading away most of their, their draft for this year to put established players around their young, their young price controlled quarterback, uh, and do you think that this is a model that holds water as sort of, yeah, this is the way that you're going to see teams be successful over the next five, 10 years? Yeah, I, the Browns are an interesting case because when Dorsey stepped into that position, they had such a surplus of draft capital and such a surplus of, of salary cap that they could do something like this and not really have that much of a negative effect as far as the ability to to fill that rookie pipeline. I mean, they traded away their first round pick this year. So they don't have a first round pick that they that they would have had this year. But other than that, they've kept everything else intact. They're gonna have all their picks next year. Um they're over the cap this year, but they have they have cap that they've been able to roll over for the last couple of years. So again, it's a situation where they can get out under it. Now I don't think what they're doing is ideal for maximizing for the in the long term, but in the short term, clearly it's ideal. And I think the Browns were in such a were in a great situation because they had so much surplus to spend going into it. Whereas if you look at teams like the Rams, the Eagles to a degree, uh the Chicago Bears, they've really given up a few years of that rookie pipeline and they've also given up especially in the case of the bears cap flexibility with play with players like 
Khalil Mack going forward, where I think for them, it's going to be, you know, a championship in the next two years or bust. And I, I have a feeling in a couple of years, we're going to, the narrative is going to flip around to, you know, do whatever you can to win with that quarterback on a rookie contract to don't go too crazy when you have that quarterback on a rookie contract, or else you're going to be looking to, to rebuild again after a couple of years. Ooh, that's uh that's well-framed, I think. And it's not the answer I expected, but, uh, I do get what you were saying about the Browns. They were clearly playing with house money. Uh, I liked the job Dorsey did in the offseason. I think they've, they've, I don't know, do they have a weakness on that roster? Uh, I don't think they have the weakness. I mean, the secondary isn't great. The linebackers are pointing out as being a weakness. So the, the offensive line got worse over, over the year when they, when they got rid of um, you know, the, 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 best, the best guard in the league when, the, when they made the trade for, uh, for Vernon um so maybe there are some weaknesses but I, I think again it's it's a lineup that's just very it's very top heavy so when you when you have uh Beckham and you have these other guys in there uh it'd be interesting to see if they can stay healthy but I think yeah I mean I think there, there's I don't think we've ever seen uh something like this where a team has gotten so quickly as good as they are because of this huge amount of draft capital, I mean, maybe something like the Cowboys in the early nineties. So while I'd be a little bit hesitant to get too out in front of saying the Browns are going to be great. I mean, there's some argument that they have the most combined talent in the league because they have so many great players on rookie contracts and they're still spending, you know, like I said, they're, they're over the salary cap for how much they're spending. So they're still spending a ton of money with all of these guys on reduced contracts. So there's an argument to be, be to be made that they have the most talented, uh, talented roster in the league. <laughs> You, well, you got to throw a trigger warning in before you start talking, alluding to the Herschel Walker <laughs> trade, dude. <laughs> oh, oh, come on. Oh, my poor team. But oh, I, I like to hear somebody who isn't just all in on Browns. I guess, I, mean, I guess you're right. You did say Super Bowl or bust here soon, but it does kind of make me, it makes me think of maybe some of those Warriors teams where everybody looks at Holy Lord, look at all the talent we have on this roster, but then you look at the bench. Or you, yeah. you look at what hap- what happens if you have a couple halfway decent injuries if the depth is shit, you uh you quickly, quickly, quickly regress. And that'll yeah. it'll be interesting. I'm I'm a little bit on the Browns fade train this year. Oh man. Yeah, I I don't know what to make of the Browns because I, I think I think logically it it would be a fade, but they really have upgraded so much. And like I said, I, you just don't see teams add this much talent this quickly. Um, and, you know, maybe you'd expect that Baker Mayfield might be a little bit overhyped at this point. But the problem is I, I had such a strong opinion of him coming out as a prospect that it's more like confirmation of what of what I already thought of him. So, ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, interesting. How about a GM or organizationally? Any, uh, I guess, any any organizations stick out about making minus EV moves this last offseason? And um, we don't have to single out. We don't have to. We just don't have to pick on the Giants. This of is the not thirty-one a, GM. Of the thirty-one GMs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I haven't been a fan of what the of what the Bears have been doing, Ooh. just because I think that it's. I mean, it's going to be interesting. I mean, if you saw, but they didn't. They didn't have a first or second round pick. They traded up in the third round to get a running back, which is not necessarily a great option. I think they're a team where where it's going to be interesting when they you know they lost their defensive coordinator. Um, again, it's like are they are they thin? You know, maybe a little bit thin at some of these positions. I, I think that's that's a team that I'm not in love with. But it's only it's only I'm only contrasting that to the fact that 
they've gotten so much praise for what they've been able to do. Um, so I'm, I'm probably not as high on, on what they've been doing versus what some of the perception is this year. Wow. Not an answer I expected. Uh, Andy, any off the top of your head, any GM jobs that you think uh, that uh, uh, sh- we should be especially critical of? I mean, easy to pick well, on the Texans because they don't have a GM. But oh, any yeah. when, you, when you talk about trading up for a running back and just how drafts have gone, I, it makes me think of Seattle. Just with what they did two years ago with uh, drafting drafting the running back early and then how they – how they constructed their draft this year and the, the places they needed to improve and kind of what the, the direction they went instead. I, I'm really curious of what they're trying to do around Russell Wilson right now. That doesn't make a lick of sense to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's going to be a tough one this year. I mean, well, th- that's another one where they're going to need Russell Wilson to continue to bail them out of some bad play calling by converting third down. So sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't work. <laughs> How about I mean, that? you see that a lot. Yeah, you, need the, yeah. you need the magic, or it ain't, it ain't working. I mean, what you know, Blake Portals can look good one year and can look bad another year, and that's because you just give them a whole bunch of hot. You know, just give them a, a you lower the amount of attempts, but you make them very high leverage. And if you happen to roll the right number uh, enough times, you can have a great season, or you could have a really poor season. So it can, you know, have more faith in Russell Wilson, of course, but I'd rather just give him a lot more pass attempts to to prove his value. Yeah, the way you win with Blake Bortles is you score one defensive touchdown a game, uh, which is <laughs> obviously reputable. Um, now, let's, let's, okay, so uh, how about uh, we give some shine to the, some of the franchises who have leaned hard into the uh, into the analytics in terms of hiring front office, in terms of kind of um, putting people in in places to uh, help in game play calling uh, or roster construction. Like, do you have an inside scoop on you know which franchises deserve some credit for that? Well, I mean, everyone knows about the Eagles and, and what they had done. So I think there's they obviously deserve an acknowledgement um, with, with Roseman taking over there and then Peterson, and they're very active of what they've done there. So I think that's a, that's a fairly obvious one. The Colts are kind of my my favorite probably. Now they, pro- they, they could have spent more money, and obviously they have all this cap space that they haven't used. But again, I think they're taking more of a long-term strategy. Now how that will work out with – with Andrew Luck, who isn't the youngest quarterback, what will be interesting. But I think what they're doing is they're just building up that cap space to spend extending their own players, which is always much, much more of a value than it is to spend that money in free agency. So it makes some sense there. They have a pretty strong analytics team. Um, they seem to be to be taking what they're saying. I like a lot of what Chris Ballard has said there. So the Colts would definitely be would definitely be one of my favorites for 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 what they've been able to do there. Uh, I'm trying to think of some others who have been who've been pretty good. Uh, I mean, go ahead. I was just gonna ask. So, like, like you gave you gave some shine to Philly, which I think is is worthy. And I, I would even go farther on the Philly thing and say, you know, they they challenged the paradigm and they got rewarded for it ultimately, right? Like they like they got the ultimate reward for kind of pushing into the you know aggressive fourth down space. And when you get rewarded like that, I feel like now that's now that's in your DNA, right? And other teams where they're hiring in, in analytics, like I guess the Ravens, the Panthers, Chargers. I've heard all of these teams have invested in analytics departments, but I'm still like I need to see it to believe it. Like I need to see Anthony Lynn make a you know make a, a plus EV decision on fourth down before I would believe that the Chargers have truly invested in analytics. Is that does that make sense? No, that totally makes sense. The Chargers actually would be one team that I would place near the 
near the top if you were going to mention teams that you know they have a lot of talent they were very successful but if you look at what they've actually done from a coaching perspective it's just been bad like they just make bad decisions <laughs> they you know they they don't run play action enough they don't go for fourth down enough they don't throw the ball enough early with philip rivers also i mean with the context that you have that you have philip rivers there and you know lynn has gotten a lot of positive press because they've done well and you know he's an imposing presence he probably commands a lot of respect those sorts of things but you can't tell me anything he's done has really has really made sense you know and when he went for that fourth down like at the end of the game to beat kansas city um of course the, the proper strategy was to do it before that was to do it yeah, on the touchdown right, before right, that right <laughs> then, then you could have easily won the game so uh, it, it's it's more of a seat of the pants kind of conserve very conservative approach what they're running there again it's a team that, that doesn't necessarily have uh run a lot of plays have a very strong pace have really does that much there but they have, they have a very talented team because they've drafted so well so i think that's a team where i'm a little bit concerned about the fact that coaching is probably a lot worse than what people think it is Ooh, ooh i can't wait for the colts to beat the chargers kind of share in the afc uh, title <laughs> We said that oh, a yeah, lot yeah, last yeah. year as far as like the, For sure. the the talent the talent is hiding the you know the coaching the ineptness of the coaching and the leadership there. Just you, you can kind of mask it when you draft that well and you have that much talent on the roster. And I guess I kinda of wanted uh, your take too on something we talk about. We've talked about it a little bit last year, but it's really come up already this summer. Not so much roster construction, but leadership construction. And, you know, I, I'm from Minnesota. I follow the Vikings. I love the Mike Zimmer hire. I mean, I, I was in love with it. And here we are a few years later, and I've, I, I, wanted, I wanted a divorce last year. And we've, we've, we've been over this a few times as far as, in, you know, in today's NFL, a, a defense-minded approach, a defense-minded head coach, like, we're really not excited about the you know, Denver, Broncos higher, yeah. You know, taking Fangio, like I, I just don't know if that's the right way to go about things. And just with what what we've seen from the analytics the last few years, and what's worked for teams who are successful at the highest level. Red flag yeah, for think, you for the Vikings. Um, I think the Vikings. They are a team as far as roster construction. They've gone that they're becoming these cap wizards because they keep on uh, re-signing and extending their their draft picks. So they hit a bunch of draft picks um, at a very very low cost. When you talk about guys like Diggs, who was a late round pick, Thielen was an undrafted free agent, um, but now they've extended them all. And so they've done this cap game where they've had where they're really going with this barbell approach. So I think that they're a bit fragile there. Now, as far as coaching is concerned, yeah, I think the, the problem with Zimmer, I don't mind having a defensive coach, um, but you didn't hear anything but the wrong things coming out of his mouth last year when it came to wanting to you know, establish the run more, even though they had the worst running offense in the league at that point. Um, it's because it, really it wasn't established. <laughs> that's, that's true. It wasn't for lack of trying. Um, so the, so I, th- I think when you hear those things, it becomes a little bit of a negative. Although, you know, I'm not really set on the fact that everyone should be hiring an offensive guru. I think it just when it comes down to it, at least I can tell what an offensive guru is doing, whereas it's a little bit murkier to me to figure out what, what makes a great defensive coach, um, whereas pretty easily I could say for an offensive coach, okay, you're, you're doing stuff innovative on offense. You're passing the ball more. You're trying to do more play action. Okay, I know those things work. It's just tougher for me to figure out what works from a defensive perspective or what is unique or what's, what is cutting edge from a defensive perspective. 
so a guy like Kyle Shanahan, who has two seasons of, you know, sub six wins on his resume, we can all still sit around and say, yeah, you know, he's figuring it out, though. Like he's doing good things and there's really no reason to put heat on him. Uh, whereas you flip the script and you may have a coach who has won double digits several years, like let's just throw, oh, I don't know, Bill O'Brien into the discussion or, oh, I don't know, Jason Garrett into the discussion where they're winning in spite of bad decision-making and it is worth putting pressure and heat on those kind of coaches. Would you kind of agree with that sentiment? Yeah, I agree with that some. I mean, the, the 49ers are probably a team I could bring up from a personnel perspective that I'm not really – very happy about it. I think I think one of the problems was I think Shanahan's a, a, a amazing coach going into that circumstance though I think he was probably given a little bit too much personnel say and you know when they hired John Lynch part of that I think was bringing in someone who didn't have a lot of authority so because that was going to be shared authority with 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 Shanahan so they they spent a ton of money on free agents and we'll you know we'll, we'll we'll see where that goes but I think from a pure coaching perspective I would I would agree with you there you know, a lot of this just comes down to whether or not these guys have the quarterback and whether they're maximizing what's what they're doing there. So having Deshaun Watson or having Garoppolo, a lot of it's going to depend on how they how they end up playing this year. I think both have done, you know, both uh, someone like O'Brien has done has done fairly well. We'll just end up well, we'll have to end up seeing how they're doing because they've lost out on all these draft picks the last couple of years. I mean, they had to they had to get rid of a second round pick to get rid of Osweiler, and then they had to they have obviously a first round pick they're missing. Uh, from the Deshaun Watson trade, so they're a little bit they're a little bit lean as far as talent is concerned in those areas. Got it, got it, got it. Well, let me get to kind of my main question that I really wanted to to spitball here. See if you agree with this, or if you can, if you think I'm, you know, kind of off off in la la land a little bit. Um, the entire ana- analytics revolution has kind of has been very instructive. It's been very helpful for handicapping. Um, but as I kind of step back and I look at all of the you know, the, the individual truths, they all kind of have a pretty clear and consistent pattern of someone has gone out and captured some inefficiency in the way that the game is being played. And I kind of am now at the place where I feel like the way things are done, you know, so to speak, it, it's, it's so hard baked into how the players are coached from the youth level up to the pros and so many coaches and GMs are resistant to kind of lean into and learn from the data science. So basically, every disruption, no matter what it is, seems to have a positive impact, right? So basically, if you're just willing to challenge the norms, you're going to find some plus EV space in football, it feels like. Does this add up in any way? I think so. I mean, I think what people have to realize about coaching and strategy is that it's 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 not a inherent skill to the coach like a player's talent is i mean you can't you can't just say you know what i'm just going to as a quarterback i'm just going to do what pat what pat mahomes does because because you can't right like only only a certain players can do that whereas coaches they can steal from each other they can learn what's going on and i think when you have a breeding ground not only in college, but you know what they're doing in high school for for what they're doing there. You already have it tested. So you have plenty of tested theories that have been shown to work on lower levels. They just haven't been implemented in the NFL. So I don't think it's even nearly as risky as coaches may think who are trying to protect their jobs to do some of these things. Maybe it's risky from a PR standpoint to do things that are different, but you, <laughs> you've literally you've literally already seen these things work on a different level. And I think coaches. Um, 
what the, the biggest problem with what coaches are and, and what decision makers are doing is they think that the NFL is somehow fundamentally different than other leagues. But typically what you're seeing is teams and what they've done in college don't have a personnel advantage, don't have a talent advantage. What they've done to close the gap, implementing those same things with great talent can also have great benefits. So it's really just, you know, look at that Petri dish, look at everything that's going on in the college space and try to bring in what's working to the NFL. And it's almost going to work every time. Mm. Okay. That's it well makes said. me think about that the coach that never kicks, the high school coach. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine? Oh, that'd be I would, the greatest. Oh my god. That'd, that'd be the greatest. That'd be the best uh, season. So ever entertaining. It'd be One so entertaining. team started to do that. Oh, well, so especially great. a team that that has relatively little chance of making the the playoffs in the first place. So just 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 throw that in there. I, I think the problem one of the issues with the with the NFL is I think every team Every fan base right now thinks they got better, right? Like somehow, yeah. somehow all 32 teams are better than they were last year, which, you know, it cannot logically be true, right? But everyone thinks they got better. Everyone is waiting and no one really gives up on the chance of making the playoffs until they're six, seven, eight season, eight weeks into the season and things are really looking bad. Uh, maybe even longer for some teams, but some teams should just approach, you know, week one like, hey, we're probably not going to make the playoffs. So let's do some things that can really be jarring and try to, to, to do it from day one, but you're just not going to see that in the NFL at least. Even in uh, 2019 Arizona Cardinals? Well, I think they have, they actually have some decent talent. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so we'll, they we'll kind of do. <laughs> I like, I mean, I'm a huge Kyler Murray fan also. I've kind of gone back and forth between whether I liked Baker Mayfield more than I like Kyler Murray. And I don't know. I mean, I just feel like with Murray and what, and what he's doing, you know, you never really got the buy-in for Russell Wilson for for what he's been able to do because he hasn't fit that mold because he was a third-round pick, um, because he, he's he's not as fast as as Murray. He's he probably doesn't have as strong of an arm or as accurate as Murray either in some ways too. So I really just feel like Murray could 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 kind of redefine what we're looking for at the quarterback position. So I'm very very excited to see what what they're going to do with the Cardinals. I love it. Okay, let's do a couple quick hits. I'll go first. Andy, you think about what you want to ask, and then we'll wrap this up here in the next 10 minutes. Uh, I am uh, dying to know what the analytics community thinks about Aaron Rodgers and whether or not he is still a top-five quarterback. When the dust settles after the 2019 season is a wrap, will he be in the top five? You know, I, I think he'll be right in that, in that top-five range. I mean, if you look from a purely number standpoint, since 2014, he's only he had, he was in the top five in 2016. He hasn't really been in the top five. Uh, he was outside of the top 15 probably in 2015. So and he had the injury year uh, in 2017. So he hasn't been good. But this is one of these things where if, I don't want to be too dogmatic about uh, a numbers approach here. And I think there's enough talent that we all can clearly see that he has it there. So I think it's probably more likely than not that he's going to get back in there. But the, the, the talent level across the NFL has gone up with guys like Baker Mayfield and Pat Mahomes and Carson Wentz jumping onto the scene the last few years. So I, I would say yes, but I, I just don't hold him as a lock, you know, top one, top two, top three type of quarterback like most people would. Strong agree. Uh, I mean, back to the Browns, does experience, I mean, does talent and scheme trump experience? We saw it halfway with, you know, Andy Reid's a very experienced, successful coach, but, you know, with Mahomes, young guy, hadn't really played, went out and had the craziest season he did. Honestly, if they were in the NFC, they'd have been in the Super Bowl. They ran into, you know, a dynasty team that was tough. 
Baker and Kitchen. Now you've gone you go with the coach with no experience and I mean he's a he's a second year guy. With all the hype, I mean does does it really matter when you have that scheme and that talent? Does experience really come into play? I I, I assume it matters, but these sorts of things, just as a general rule, I assume they matter less than what the conventional wisdom may be. I mean, I'm I'm much more a talent over coaching for similar reason that I talked about before, which is, you know, talent has attributes and skills that you just cannot, you can't scheme talent. You can't, whereas you can, you can steal somebody's scheme. You can break down everything that, that Sean McVay did last year and try to try to emulate it. So I think I wouldn't be as concerned about the coaching and the leadership and, and that sort of stuff when it comes to experience. I think as long as you have the talent and you have a competent scheme, you give yourself a good chance to win. The problem is you just, you just very, it's not very often you have a team that has inexperience at quarterback inexperience at head coach and has a real contending roster. And when there are 32 teams in the NFL, you're just not going to see that formula win very often just because there aren't many of them that have a chance. Oh, to win. Okay. Good point. That's a good point. Uh, how about uh, the Pat Mahomes? We haven't really mentioned him. I haven't really given the Chiefs much of a chance this year, which is probably bad on me. Uh, but uh, any chance or any signs, any reason to expect regression from him from a statistical standpoint this year? Well, I mean, I think everyone, I mean, most people are going to say there's going to be some regression. It would be pretty outstanding if he was able to replicate what he had done, essentially setting records last year. So I think that's the case. Um, Tariq Hill situation, of course, is interesting. And you can't help but think that while Pat Mahomes is an unbelievable talent at quarterback we still only have one season really in the nfl to to go off of i mean i loved him as a prospect but he wasn't a andrew luck type of prospect coming out he was a number 10 overall pick and and seen as being a high pick in that in that regard so we'll we'll have to see that we don't have maybe we wouldn't be as confident going forward and you know they didn't have a lot of injuries the year before and you know alex smith played at what I would call an MVP like adjacent kind of, uh, level the the year before with the same talent. So how much of this is Mahomes? How much of it is the surrounding talent? How much is everything else? I think we probably know less than we think we do about that. So regression is probably in store with with optimism, I guess. Ooh. Well, that's a that's I think that's a very fair take. I was like my, I tweeted you that the one time when we talked about this, you give them a twenty percent regression just in touchdowns and interceptions it's a 40 and 19 season yeah that's it's still, good I, I mean, <laughs> that's good start naming teams yeah start naming teams that would take a 20 percent regress over what they currently have it's a bunch. i think yeah there's uh, at least there's at least 25 25 of them yeah yeah um got another team you love that we love uh the colts the colts cap situation because this I'm pumped for them. We got excited about it. We we had some big numbers on them to win the AFC. It was a nice it was a nice like comeback story after the the slow start for the season. Like are are they are they kind of the model for the team that's doing it right right now as far as you know the future goes, you know, a long term. I don't think anybody anybody's talking about the Colts being like a consensus top two, three team. I, I do. I think they're a top five team, but I think they're a top five team for like the next five years plus. Like, I really love what they're doing with the, the roster construction and the cap space they've built. Yeah, I mean, I, t- I touched on this a little bit before. Yeah, I, I think 
from what we're seeing now across all sports, I mean, we just saw, you know, Roger Federer the other day with guys getting older. I mean, you're going to hope that Andrew Luck can stay uh, away from shoulder issues and continue on for another five years. And if you can do that, I think they place themselves in a, in a great situation. I mean, I, me- I mentioned before how their cap space is really being set aside to extend players and extend them early. And I think that's the that's going to be a really an amazing advantage to them. I mean, I ran some numbers where I was looking at, okay, like I said, we have this war metrics. And then I was also looking at how war, how costly it is to buy a win, essentially, for different types of players. <laughs> so so in, in, in free agency, it takes almost 20% of your team cap to just to buy a win. So almost $40 million to buy a win. When you extend your own player, now, part of this is the fact that the best players don't hit the market, and part of it is you have a lot better leverage. You're, you know, you're the only bidder in these situations. It only t- it takes about nine percent of the cap, so about sixteen million dollars, so way less than half. And then, and then through the draft, it's more like twelve million dollars. It goes even, it goes even lower. So if you're if you're concentrating on extending your own players and drafting, you're just going to be able to give yourself such a better chance to raise the floor and the ceiling for how many wins that your team can have. And, and that's what they're doing. But I think in the short term, if the Colts stumble this year, for some reason, you can, you, you, uh, you know, I'm going to have to be out there every day, just defending the honor of Ballard because he, people are going to be hitting on him for not spending enough money in free agency. If that happens, what was even their weakness though? Like where should they have even addressed? Well, I, I think people are going to just say on on the, the you know on the defense they could have spent some more. I mean, they eventually ended up getting Houston on the defensive line, right? But maybe they could have maybe they could have spent some more there. I mean, I think th- they just have what is it, fifty million dollars in cap space. When you have that much cap space, people are going to complain. And you know, you could say as of today, you may say they don't have a weakness, but if they aren't performing well, you know, de facto that they, they will have a weakness, right? So some people will point to that weakness and say, sure, why wasn't sure, that okay. why, why wasn't that addressed? So I don't think they're going to perform poorly. I'm really hoping they don't. But, um, you know, I mean, Ballard traded out again, and he, they were looking to trade down possibly a second time. And those are types of things where when things are going well, uh, fans accept it. When things are not going well, there can be a lot of finger pointing involved in it. Uh, I thought this was a bad draft, and I thought it moving down was freaking very, very, very shrewd. And I, I also don't – I thought the free agent class was poor. I, so, you know, yeah, it was – I, I, no, I, I agree I'm, with I'm, you. I'm pro-Ballard I'm pro on all this. Uh, let's end with one last question and, and put a final point on put, – put a bow on this spectacular episode. The question that is burning up the Twitter sphere right now between the, uh, the analytics community and the, uh, and the ex-players all kind of stems from what the hell do you do with Zeke Elliott now? It's kind of so, same sort of situation with Melvin Gordon. Like you have these running backs on rookie deals that are producing more than they're getting compensated. What the hell do you do now? I think Zeke is probably an easier answer for what you do because there is a trade market for him. I mean, he's a year. He has, he has a, you know, not only this year, but he has the fifth year option left on his contract. I mean, I would not be surprised if they could get a second round pick right for him i think um maybe better than a second round pick um whereas for someone like melvin gordon which who would require a contract extension isn't seen as being in the same level of a player require an immediate extension i'm not sure what you could get for him so it's really an issue of matching up the the optics of making that trade versus what you're willing to accept as far as heat from fans and others so i mean the solution for either one and if you're just going to say you're just you're just like you just don't care about the negative heat or any of those things would be to trade them and see what compensation you can get you can get for them um if you can't get much for someone like gordon 
it would be just to let him play out his contract and then try to get a, a, a comp pick for him. Yeah. Okay. Who would even trade for Zeke though? <laughs> like, I mean, can you, would you advocate uh, for any team to give up a second round pick for Zeke? Well, if you're a competitive team, um, I could see someone looking to do that. I mean, who would do that? I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if anyone would do it, but like the, um, I don't know. What, I mean, if we're talking about a late second round pick. I could see, I could see some teams doing it. Like well, I could see the the Steelers saying, hey, why not? We'll, we'll bring them in, right? Um, or someone like that. So it's, I don't think it's the right move to do, of course, but I'm just saying that he has a star power that I could see a team convincing themselves that he's worth it, where I don't think Melvin Gordon reaches that level. That makes sense. That, that, the that's kind fair. of team that trades for Zeke is the Cowboys. <laughs> or the Redskins. Yeah, well, that, and the Redskins well, that, aren't going to do it. That's yeah, the problem. Yeah. But it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the Jaguars will bring him in also. They're like Fournette oh, and Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The Vikings will trade for Zeke. They can finally have their running game established. Uh, there's no, no, there's no, there's no history of the Vikings and the and the Cowboys making a trade for an impactful running back, is there? I certainly can't think of any I feel, example. I feel, I feel like, I feel like we've given Spielman some shine, and we should think, we should think highly of him and not, uh, not put that juju on them. All right. Well, let's wrap this up. This was extremely fun and educational as always. A lot of what you said kind of spurred some thinking on my end about how I'm going to tweak my uh, my handicapping model for this season. I'm going to back test a couple theories, see if it uh, can help me produce some better results over the last uh, couple seasons, and then uh, use it for some forward projections. So, thank you. Uh, it was incredibly fun and interesting conversation, Kevin Cole. Where can people track down some of your work, and uh, what do you have coming up uh, that you're especially interested in? Well, yeah, you know, so I started PFF not that long ago. You can always follow me on Twitter at Kevin Cole PFF. We are working on a bunch of different stuff for the season. I'm specifically working on combining our wins above replacement metric with salary cap information, trying to get player valuations, projections, things like that. So it's probably not going to be a 2019 in-season sort of thing, but I think it's something where we're going to have some good stuff going into next season where you're going to be able to judge team free agency moves things like that for what sort of impact they'll have so hopefully we'll have a lot of new tools in that area and that's really where my focus has been but like i said it's only been a few months here so once we get in season you know we're gonna have i'm gonna be involved in fantasy projections and stuff that we're doing on green line which is our pick service other things so i'll, I'll be all over the place Right on. Well, when the uh, Houston Texans reach out for an interview, I'll be happy to give them a reference. Uh, and uh, best of luck this season. Thank you again. And uh, we'll Good luck. Uh... Your, your first season there. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right around cool. the next corner. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks, guys.